Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come now to this time, as we open up your holy, inspired, and inerrant word, Lord, we pray that you would write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Lord, unless you bless us, unless you open our eyes to see the truth of your word, Lord, we are blind to it. Open our hearts, open our eyes, open our minds to see the truth of your word today. Lord, let us see Jesus. Let us know Jesus more fully, more intimately today. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen. After seminary, finishing up there, we did not know where we were going, but uh, a little church in Perryville, Arkansas called us up. Now, at that time, I knew nothing about Perryville, Arkansas. In fact, I had to go Google it because I did not know. I was from Arkansas, born and raised, but I had no idea where Perryville, Arkansas was. And so went to Google it, and, and so uh, not knowing where Perryville was, obviously, uh, we didn't know anybody from Perryville, Arkansas. And so when we got there, when God brought us there, uh, we had to start building a new base of friends. We had to begin to build friendships there. And when I got there, someone told me, a few people told me actually, uh, hey, you need to get to know this preacher down the road, Gene Tanner, the pastor of, of Apollo Baptist Church. Apollo is even smaller than Perryville, but he was the, the pastor. He was about five miles down the road from us. And, and so they said, you need to get to know Brother Gene. Well, uh, all right, I need to get to know Brother Gene. Well, the first time I met Gene was at a school event. It was uh, actually a school award ceremony. I was there awarding a student there with a, a little scholarship that Perryville Second Baptist had awarded this girl. And so I was there uh, giving this, out this award and someone, a church member of mine, introduced me to Gene. So that was the first time I met Gene Tanner. At that point in time, I knew Gene, I knew his face, I knew enough about him that I could go to the grocery store and see him. Hey, Gene, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you, Richard? Great. Right? We were acquaintances. But really, that's as far as our friendship, friendship went. We were kind of both busy about our own things, doing our own things. And so we didn't really get to know each other right off the bat. Well, a couple of years later, a mutual friend of ours called me up one day, and he said, Richard, hey, why don't, we, uh, why don't you, Gene, and I start getting together and, and just go through a book together? I like to read. So I was like, sure, hey, let's do that. And so the three of us began to meet on a weekly basis going through a book. I think it was a, one of MacArthur's books. And we began to, to go through this book together. Well, as we began to meet on a weekly basis and now, then we began to really know each other. We began, began to uh, build a friendship. And then after that, once that friendship began to, to bud, then Gene and I began to work together in our local Baptist association. And then we started going to conferences together, and we became really good friends. And so as I began to know Gene, know more about Gene, we, our friendship grew from not knowing Gene 
to having him as an acquaintance, becoming a brother in Christ, a dear friend. And he is still a dear friend today. You know, that's the way it typically works, isn't it? As we get to know someone, as we get to know them personally, more, more, get to know more about them, who they are, who their family is, what they like, what they dislike, as we begin to know a person, the deeper our love for that person grows. You know, it's the same way with Jesus. It's the same way with Jesus. There are many people in the world who do not know Jesus. They know nothing about Jesus. He's not even an acquaintance. Then there's those who, who know a little bit about him, and, and they kind of like Jesus because, hey, he had some good things to say. Then there's those who know Jesus. Those who have entered into a relationship with Jesus. Even we Christians, we, we know Jesus. We know some things about Jesus. But you know, in this life, as we grow to know more about Jesus, our love for Jesus grows deeper and deeper and deeper. I don't care how old you are, how long you've been a Christian, how mature you are, are as a Christian, your love for Jesus will grow deeper and deeper the more you know and understand about Jesus. So this Easter season, as we enter into the Easter season, I want our love for Jesus to grow. I want us to fall deeper and deeper in love with Jesus Christ. And so today we're looking at John's Gospel, John chapter 18. And over the course of the next few weeks, uh, we're going to look at John 18, 19, and 20. Today we're looking at 18, and we're looking at who is Jesus. Who is Jesus? And we're going to see some characteristics of Jesus, some attributes of Jesus that I hope will make our love for him grow deeper and deeper. Jesus is the Christ, God's Son, who gave himself as a substitute for his followers. That's our message in a sentence today. Jesus is the Christ, God's Son, who gave himself as a substitute for his followers. So I want us to, to look at at uh, three attributes of Jesus that I hope will make our love for him grow even deeper. Now, the context of this, this is the day of crucifixion. As we get into chapter 18 of John's gospel, this is the day of, of the crucifixion. This is early in the morning, and Jesus and his disciples, they're in the, the uh, Garden of Gethsemane. They've been there praying, and we're going to come in on the, the story where uh, Judas comes with the band of soldiers to arrest Jesus. And so we're just going to kind of work through this section by section as we see these three attributes of Jesus that will cause our love for him to grow deeper. First of all, in, in verses 1 through 11, we see that uh, we see the first attribute of Jesus is this. Jesus is God's son who has the power to protect his followers. Jesus is God's son who has the power to protect his followers. Look with me there in chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, 
he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, that is the garden of Gethsemane, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So this was a, a normal hangout spot for Jesus and his disciples to go pray and, and, and just study God's word together. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers. Now, a band of soldiers there, the Greek word there, the term that's used there, uh, this was a cohort of soldiers. Now, a cohort was typically somewhere between 600 to 1,000 soldiers. 600 to 1,000 soldiers. Now, it's not necessarily necessary that there are 600 to 1,000 soldiers here. Most likely, they're, they're fewer than that. Most likely, they didn't send 1,000 soldiers to come and capture Jesus. But this is a, a large number. And that's why John includes that, that detail here. This is a band of soldiers, a cohort of soldiers. Most likely, what it means is there were about 200 soldiers who were called out, procured from uh, Pontius Pilate, and sent out here to arrest Jesus. We know that it was a, enough soldiers that their, their captain, their commander, was sent out with them. So you can imagine 200 people coming out to arrest Jesus. This was a common practice for, for Romans, for the Roman government. Uh, they were often, they, they wanted to make sure that they they squashed any sign of rebellion. So when this man, whom the, the uh, religious leaders were calling the, a rebel, who promised to, to raise up an insurrection, as they were telling Pontius Pilate, as, as this man was rising up, they sent out enough soldiers to conquer and squelch to crush his rebellion. So imagine about 200 soldiers coming out with Judas to arrest Jesus. So here comes this band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. They come out to get Jesus and any of those who might resist with him. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. Notice that detail. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, knowing all that would take place in the next 24 hours, knowing he would go to Calvary's cross and be crucified, he stepped forward. He stepped forward. And he said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered again, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken 
of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. And that was Jesus talking in John chapter 17, verse 12. From all that you, whom you have given me, I have not lost one, not one. As this scene plays out, we notice a couple of things here. We notice a couple of things about Jesus. Number one, Jesus is protector. Jesus is protector. As this band of soldiers, 200 plus soldiers, coming out to get Jesus, here is one man who stands out and he comes forward. He comes forward and he surrenders himself to this band of soldiers. No resistance. No shrinking back into the darkness, but with boldness he steps forward. I am he. And Jesus does this. Why? So that he might fulfill what was spoken before, that, he, that of all that God had given him, all of his disciples, all of his followers, he did not lose one. He did not call his disciples to come forward and fight for him, but he stood forward. I am he. Let them go. Jesus is protector. He protects those who follow him, those are, who are his own. But there's also something else we see here. Jesus has the authority to protect. He has the power to protect because Jesus is divine. Jesus is divine. Jesus is the very Son of God, son, uh, God in human flesh. We see this work out in the text. Notice what he says here. Whom do you seek? And Jesus says, what? I am. I am. You see that the English adds the he. Because that's the smooth translation of this. But the, the word there, the term that Jesus uses in the Greek is, is I may, ego emi. Ego emi. I am. I am. Now this has great significance. And that's why that all these people who are with Judas, they fall down on their faces when he pronounces, I am. Because this is a, a, a term that's rich in meaning, especially for the Jews. This is the term that the Old Testament Greek text uses often in, 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 to, uh, in referring to God. Especially in Isaiah. Even back there in, in uh, Exodus where Moses goes before God and he says, who can I say is sending me? And God says, tell him, I am sent you. As Jesus stands there and they say, who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am. You see the great implication here. He's not just saying, I'm Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, he says, I am. I am God. I am God in human flesh. I am. This is a phrase often used by Jesus in the book of, in the book of John. 
In John chapter 8, verses 58 through 59, that's the first place it appears. Jesus is, is sitting there. He's talking to the, uh, an audience, and he says to them, Before Abraham was, I am. Ego and me, I am. And the Jews there, they understood the implication that Jesus was getting at because then in the daylight, they've started picking up stones to stone him to death because in their eyes, he was blaspheming, making himself even with, equal with God. And they come saying, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answers, I am. Jesus is protector because Jesus has the power to protect. He is divine. Jesus is the very Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God in human flesh. You see, as an, an ordinary man, he could stand up against this mob and he may rush into the battle thinking he can do some good, but an ordinary man rushing into this mob has no power against the mob an ordinary man would be put down quickly but Jesus God in human flesh he has the power to protect he has the power to stand up against all opposition and I want you to know dear friend if you are a true follower of Jesus Christ he will protect you he will protect you and the greatest thing he will protect you from is judgment. He will protect you from judgment, from God's judgment. As the text goes on there, verse 10, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword away. Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Notice that term. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? In this context, that cup represents the cup of God's wrath. The cup of God's judgment that God is storing up and saving for those who, who sin against God, who rebel against God. There's a cup being filled even today of God's wrath, ready to be poured out upon the nations for all of the world's disobedience against God. But those who follow Jesus, God put the wrath into a cup that he drank, that he absorbed upon himself. When he went to Calvary's cross, he drank the cup of God's judgment that was reserved for you, dear friend, if you trust in him. He drank the cup so that he might protect you from God's judgment. Oh, do you know Jesus today? Do you know Him? Are you a follower of Jesus? 
then rest assured that you are safe, you are protected in the hand of Jesus. John 10, chapter 27 through 30 reads, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the the Father are one. Jesus is the very Son of God who has the power to protect you, dear friend, if you will follow him. Now, looking at verses 12 through 27, we see a second, a second attribute of Jesus that will cause us to fall deeper in love with him. Let me just read that text. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the official officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to uh, Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon, Pe- Simon Peter excuse me, followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that other disciple is most likely John. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, He entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants of the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves, and Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in in the temple. Where all Jews come together, I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said uh, to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. John here contrasts two people being on trial. One is Peter, and the other is Jesus. Now Peter is on trial out there by the fire. As people come up to him, aren't you one of his disciples? Nope, nope, not me. Not me. 
You see, Peter, although he is guilty, he lies. He continues to lie. He's guilty. He's guilty. He is a follower of Jesus, and he's lying about it. And all at the, at the same time, he is denying Jesus. He's denying that he even knows Jesus. He is guilty of treason. He has abandoned his Lord. You see, Peter is guilty. Just like you, my friend, are guilty. You are guilty. Because you have decided in your life that you would rather do your own thing, go your own way, instead of following the way of the Lord. You are a sinner. You have transgressed the law of the Lord, and you, just like Peter, are guilty. It's like I am guilty. We are all guilty before the Lord. We may deny it in this life. We may say, oh no, not me. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. See, I, I'm not as bad as old Joe down there. I'm a good person. That's what people say. But what does Scripture say? No one is good, not even one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You, friend, are guilty before God. You stand condemned. Though you may go free in this world and in this life, you are guilty. And one day you will stand before the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he will either declare you innocent or he will declare you guilty. Which way would it be? Peter is guilty, just like you are guilty. But then look at Jesus. Jesus is the one who is really on trial, and this is an official trial. And they first take him to Annas, who is the, the father-in-law of the high priest. And I want you to see that Jesus is innocent. Jesus is innocent. Here he is wrongly condemned. Notice verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his uh, disciples and his teaching. Now, the Jews, just like American law, the Jewish law of Jesus' day, had a law that protected people from self-incrimination. They were not supposed to, to ask people to testify against themselves, right? We know that in our own law, in American law, we can plead the fifth. We can plead the fifth. We don't have to answer questions about our, ourselves. We don't have to self-incriminate. You, you have to bring up witnesses. But here, this is an illegal trial. They're asking Jesus to testify about himself, to self-incriminate. But I want you to see what Jesus does. What does he say? Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and, and in the temple. Where all the Jews come together, I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I have said. Jesus here is bringing the law back to them. Because in Jewish law, no one was to be convicted except for on the testimony of two or more witnesses. But here they have no witnesses. 
There's no witnesses to come forward and say they heard Jesus blaspheme the name of God. No witnesses, yet here Jesus is condemned. Jesus, the innocent man, is condemned in this illegal trial. Jesus is innocent. Let me tell you, dear friend, if you are a true follower of Jesus Christ, he willingly bore your guilt in your place. That's what's taking place here. You see, here's Peter. He's guilty. He's guilty. And Jesus, the innocent man, is willingly being condemned. He is willingly taking on the guilt of others so that we might be freed from our guilt. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, there's the pilgrim there, Christian, who leaves out on a journey and he's bearing his burden. He's bearing his burden. Imagine this big, humongous rucksack upon his back. It's really more than he can bear. He struggles under its weight, and he carries his burden with him everywhere he goes until he gets to the cross of Jesus Christ. And there at the foot of the cross, Christian takes off his burden and lays it before Jesus. Dear friend, that's what Jesus does for you and me. When we come to him, when we follow him, when we trust in him, he takes our burden, our guilt, which is so hard for us to bear. He takes it off our backs. He puts it on himself and he bears it in our place. Oh, dear friend, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he took your guilt and your condemnation and he bore it in your place so that he might free you from the weight of your sin and guilt. Jesus is the innocent man who was condemned to bear your guilt in your place. We see here then in verse 28 through 40 a third attribute that will deepen our love for Jesus Christ. Number three here, we see Jesus is God's king who willingly laid down his life as a substitute for his followers. Jesus is God's king who willingly laid down his life as a substitute for his followers. Look at in verse 28. Then they led Jesus to... Uh, from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. That's Pontius Pilate. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but would eat the Passover, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken 
to show by what kind of death he was going to die. That is, the death of crucifixion. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, Do do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate said to him, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I would not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber or an insurrectionist. As we look at at this next section of the text, we see here that Jesus, first of all, is God's king. Jesus is God's king. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. He doesn't deny he's a king. He says, I am a king. But my kingdom is not of this world. It's of another world. It's of another place. It is God's kingdom. And notice there, he says, if if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have fought for me so that I not be turned over to the Jews. You've heard that song. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died for you and me. You know, Jesus is God's king. And at any moment, Jesus could have called down 10,000 angels to rush upon the earth, conquer the earth, kill everything in the world. But Jesus chose to hold back his kingdom so that he might go to Calvary's cross and die for you and me. Jesus is God's king. But also we see here that Jesus died in your place. Jesus died in your place. We see it exemplified in this with the the scene with Barabbas. Here Pilate offers them, all right, here, it's a tradition at past time that I release a person back to you. Someone who is condemned, I release them back to you. Here, why don't you take Jesus? He's the most obvious choice. He's not violent. He is a, a peaceful, peaceful man. He is loved by so many. Would you like the king of the Jews? And what did the Jews say? No, no, give us Barabbas. 
Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was, it says here in the ESV, a robber. It's technically an insurrectionist. He was a rebel against the state. Here was a man who robbed and stole and, and killed in rebellion against the Roman government. It was a dirty man, an ugly man that, that you wouldn't really want to be released out into the world. Think about Charles Manson. I mean, that's how bad this guy was. He was a bad dude. And so instead of saying, no, we don't want Jesus, we want Charles Manson. We want the murderer. We want the rebel. We, want, we would rather have him than Jesus. Well, this paints a picture of what Jesus did for us. Because in God's eyes, we are no better than Barabbas or Charles Manson. We are defiled. We are rebels. We are ugly in the sight of God. Yet Jesus took our place. Just like he took the place of Barabbas on the cross, he took our place on the cross. He went and died. He gave his life for you. That cross is where you should have been hung and where I should have been hung. We should have received God's wrath and judgment for our insurrectionists. But Jesus went and died in our place, the man of peace, God's king, died on the cross for you as your substitute. Dear friends, if you are a true follower of Jesus Christ, he willingly died in your place. He loved you and gave himself up for you. Jesus is the Christ, God's Son, who gave himself as a substitute for you. You are a follower of him. John 15, 13 through 14, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You, Jesus says, are my friend if you do what I command you, if you follow after me, if you trust in me. You are my friend. Are you a friend of Jesus Christ today? Are you a true follower of Jesus? Have you surrendered your life fully to him? If so, dear friend, you can rest assured that Jesus Christ went to Calvary's cross and he, with the power of God, defeated what threatens you most, your own sin and rebellion against God. He died for you so that you might have life in Him. But let me ask you this. How many of your friends and neighbors and loved ones don't know Jesus? While you rest in assurance, how many do you know? Who do you know this Easter who needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ from you? Love Jesus. Praise Jesus for what he did. But see the importance of going and telling others who are on the path to judgment. Tell them about Jesus. 
Tell them about Jesus. Let them know the truth of the gospel, the peace that comes from knowing Christ alone. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, you are still suffering under the weight of your guilt. You know the burden you are carrying. And you know that if today you, you died, you would stand before God. You might hope. You might hope that there's enough good there to get you by. But dear friend, it's not. If you're bearing the own, your own weight of sin and guilt, you will be condemned before God. But Jesus stands before you today. He says, give me your burden. Give me your guilt. Give me your shame. Give me your sin. I'll take it. I'll bear it. So that you might have life. Trust in Jesus today. Lay your guilt at His feet. He will save you. He will give you life. You only trust in Him. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank You for the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank You that we can come knowing today, Lord, that as we follow Jesus, He is paid our debt in full. He has freed us from our guilt. We can live with such freedom as we follow Jesus. Oh Lord, let us not take that for granted. But Lord, give us the power to live for you, to live for Jesus. And Lord, give us eyes for the lost, a heart for the lost that we would not lose the opportunity this Easter and every other day of the year to tell people about what you have done for us. And Lord, for those here do, who do not know you, Lord, open their eyes to see Jesus. Let them know the freedom that comes through him. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen.